All right. So another story I want to tell you about Mike Lindell is that you always see him with a cross on. First time I ever saw him it was in Washington, D.C. at the National Prayer Breakfast, he had a big cross on. He is a Christian, and it's great because he's not afraid of his faith. And one of the other things you can get beyond the 100 products that he has, like the slippers that I've talked about, or the small pillows for your back if you're sitting too much in a chair, is you can get some religious pillows. Now, here's one. This has to do with Noah, Noah and the Ark. And on the backside, they have stories about Noah and the Ark. Now, some people may be offended by that because they think it's politically incorrect to talk about your faith or politically incorrect to call yourself a Christian. I think it's terrific in this day because the world has gone to hell, and we all know that. And it's good to know that even if you have grandchildren, you have young children, you want to get their morals and their values in order, you can always, and it's not just Noah that Mike Lindell is pushing. He's pushing all the biblical stories on these small pillows for kids. So if you're interested in having your kids introduced to some values and some Christian values and Christian beliefs and the stories in the Bible, go ahead and order any of these biblical pillows for Mike Lindell. Now, how do you get them? You get them by the promo code CDM. That's us. So just put in promo code CDM and you can get a biblical pillow for your grandchildren or your young children. And now let's get to our guests. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm Christine Dolan and this is American Conversations. And today we have Robert and Jill Malone. Dr. Jill Glasspool Malone, uh, in her own right, has been involved with science and medicine for for decades. And Robert Malone, we all know by now because you're you've been on the world stage doing many interviews um, for your for your experience with uh, mRNA technology. And you're speaking. You, you guys have spoken out in favor of medical freedom. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Thank Christine. Uh, glad so, to be here. So I, I want to ask you, Robert, because I've watched some of your interviews and your, some of your most recent interviews with uh, Candace Owens and Tucker uh, struck me with some things that you had said. With Tucker's interview recently, you said that that you seemed, I think the word was you used, I don't think you used the word ashamed, but you, you were just, you know, just astound, astounded um, at the harm that vaccines have done to people. Particularly this one, uh, I think that was the context is talking about the mRNA and adenovirus vaccines. Uh, it, it has been profound. That's what the data demonstrate. So, so in your research for years, since you were involved with mRNA, did you not know that at the time? Or is it, it, have things changed because it's, it's changed over, the, the research has changed over times? So it's important to recognize that the history, prior history of mRNA vaccines in humans is at best modest or negligible. There has never been widespread deployment of any mRNA vaccine. There have been widespread deployments and even licensure of adenovirus vectored vaccines. So the, translate that uh, for the public, because the public doesn't know the difference between that. Uh, so a, they, these are both technologies, all of the vaccines available in the United States, and this is not true worldwide. Um, Tony Fauci specifically has uh, said that he's not interested in any vaccines in the United States for COVID-19 
other than the um, mRNA or adenoviral vectored vaccines. In particular, he seems to advocate the mRNA vaccines. Is These the, are uh, go ahead. the uh, adenoviral vectored vaccines and the mRNA vaccines are both a form of gene therapy technology applied to vaccination. And uh, in the case of adenoviral vectored vaccines, we're talking about genetic engineering of a cold virus so that it no longer acts as a cold virus, but rather as a carrier of, a, of genetic information, in this case, the spike protein coding sequence, uh, to allow it to be placed into the cells of uh, human patients to generate an immune response. In the case of the mRNA, this is unproven technology in humans. In our laboratory, Jill and I worked uh, diligently for over a decade, in addition to my prior work at the Salk and then at Vical. And then I'm speaking of our time together in the academic lab. In the 1990s. And uh, those uh, products, those candidate technologies and formulations that we developed never entered human clinical trials. In fact, uh, what we found in our research was that even with uh, non-modified natural type mRNA produced in the test tube or DNA formulated with these positively charged fats called chiatic lipids um, were extremely inflammatory. They essentially would create local abscesses or pus. And uh, we abandoned the technology after uh, just banging away at it for over a decade and pivoted to other technologies that we pioneered. And this includes uh, mucosal vaccination, which Jill and I held the original patent uh, together for mucosal vaccines using any technology and uh, um, the use of post-electrical fields to allow uh, RNA or DNA to enter cells and uh, the use of jet injection into muscles. So these are examples of technologies that we pivoted to. What took place was that in the mid to late 1990s, about a decade after my pioneering work at the Salk and then at Vical when we first reduced mRNA vaccines to practice. Um, a uh, younger scientific researcher called me from uh, the University of Pennsylvania and indicated a desire to get into the field. Her name was Katie Carrico. And uh, I introduced her to various people and talked to her about what the problems were with the technology, that being the inflammation. And she connected with Dr. Drew Weissman, also at UPenn, who was trained by Tony Fauci. Mm -hmm. And they uh, pioneered a improvement on the prior technology for which they had a improvement patent issued. Um, uh, which has composition of matter components, but covers the same scope of applications as the original nine patents that were filed in 1989 to 1990. And this improvement on the technology that they patented involved the use of a modified component of the RNA, uh, of the structure of the RNA. RNAs 
generally in a global sense composed of four bases, A, U, G, and C. DNA in contrast is A, T, G, and C. And um, what Carrico and Weissman pioneered was substituting the normal U for something called pseudouridine, which is a related molecule. It's a, a nuance in shifting of chemical bonds. And pseudouridine is present in natural RNAs at very small quantities in very select places. It's highly controlled. But what they found was that if they jammed pseudouridine all the way through the RNA sequence, then it would suppress the inflammation, this abscess formation problem that I talked about when they formulated it with the positively charged lipids. Um, what that translates to is that the addition of pseudouridine, and this is well supported in the literature, is anti-inflammatory or immunosuppressive. Those are two words that kind of mean the same thing. The current vaccines from Moderna and BioNTech slash Pfizer both use the UPenn modification patent of Carrico and Weissman, which involves the incorporation, mass incorporation of pseudouridine, which results in an RNA-like molecule that is really very different from a natural mRNA and has two key differences. This extended uh, half-life, the RNA, it turns out, sticks around in your body for at least 60 days. This is highly unusual. Normal the, RNA breaks down within 45 minutes to six hours. And um, it also has the property of being immunosuppressive, which we now know is one of the problems with the repeat vaccination. That's probably due to multiple factors, the structure of the RNA being one of them, and the nature of the uh, expressed protein spike, which also has immunomodulatory activities. Have I answered your question? You have, and it's raised a number of questions for me because with you, get, did you know that at the time that you both took the, the um, Moderna shots, that, that it was different, that it stayed in your body longer? We, we knew that there was pseudouridine in there, but we assumed that the proper studies had been performed and that these things were done responsibly. Uh, it's been a, a sharp shock to learn subsequently that that assumption that there was responsible development of these products and testing, both in animal models and humans, was wrong. Byron Bridal just put out a detailed substack where he analyzed the preclinical package in the Pfizer documents that the courts have now forced to be released, compared them to the prior Japanese dossier, which he and I had both written about many months ago, which caused a major kerfuffle with the fact checkers. Um, and uh, the situation, it turns out, is even worse than we had thought it was based on the Japanese dossier. So I recommend to your viewership the recent substack from Byron Bridal where he talks about the new dossier and the non-clinical studies. Um, to put so it simply, so mRNA... I'm sorry, Joe, what, what were you saying? Yeah, these mRNA vaccines, to put it succinctly, have three problems. Number one, the cataract liposome, which there's many formulations, and we assume that they used uh, that it had become uh, safer. Mm -hmm. In fact, it looks like there was not a lot of 
preclinical work done and that what was done shows that they're aggregating in certain organs like um, ovaries. Then you have the payload, with, with, which is what this vaccine is delivering, which is the spike protein, which is cytotoxic. And there was no effort to make that uh, more safe or to use a partial segment of it. And the third is the pseudouridine issue. None of these, it looks like, were um, properly tested in preclinical trials. So, Jill, with your background on on regulatory uh, uh, re regulations, gene therapy, and, and infectious diseases, it, it seems to me that you're suggesting or, or claiming that the normal rules that would have been followed in these preclinical and clinical trials were breached under this process that we're learning so far, drip by drip, with these documents. Um, yes, in two ways. Number one. They applied, the FDA applied the checklist for a normal vaccine, not as a gene therapy product. If you were to um, have a gene therapy product, the testing that you need to do preclinically is much more significant. It's in and entails all sorts of tests um, beyond what is needed for a normal vaccine. The other thing that happened is that basically some of these agents like um, the catecholipazone are acting as an, what's called an adjuvant, which makes it a little bit more inflammatory so that you get um, an immunologic response to the body. And if you have a new adjuvant, it is very, very difficult to get that through the FDA. The FDA did not consider the catecholipazone, near as I can tell, as an adjuvant and did not require the same testing that they would normally consider for an adjuvant. So, yes, I feel that the, and we don't know. This is the truth. Actually, Jill, we do know. Okay. With the, with, because of the uh, court-forced FDA uh, document release. You're uh, talking about the, what, Pfizer, the Pfizer dump. Correct. Um, okay. That's a slam that, which is ongoing. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what is now very well documented is that the fundamentals of, a pre a preclinical or non-clinical regulatory submission package were not provided. There was not an analysis, a rigorous analysis of what's called biodistribution. That means where does the thing go? There was not a rigorous analysis of pharmacokinetics, which means how long is it expressed and where or where where is the drug, where does the drug distribute to? There was not a rigorous analysis of genotoxicity. That's part of what Jill's talking about, which is the characterization of whether or not these materials or drugs um, can affect your genome. And there was not a rigorous analysis of reproductive toxicology, which is whether or not these things affect um, reproduction and there are there's evidence in what has been done which all it pretty much in this category of non-clinical testing um what was done was not done to international standards they're called good clinical practices and um uh so that it was not done to internet or good laboratory practices it was not done to international standards the tests that are always required were not performed to the extent that they did tests. It appears that what they did was cobble together data that they had uh, 
during the developmental phase of these vaccines using other um, uh, polynucleotides, other RNAs, so not the actual vaccine product, but a surrogate that being, uh, for instance, the RNA coding for a firefly protein called luciferase. So they, there's no question now. It, it is unequivocal. The data have been released. Pfizer absolutely failed to conform with international and national norms for testing prior to introducing these products into humans and then failed to perform standard follow-up tests that are always required for other products in the past, um, such as uh, characterization of how long the product stays in the body and where it goes. We now know only because of a research group at Stanford that recently published in the journal Cell based on fine needle aspiration work. This could have been done um, in the phase one clinical trials. They could have asked this question, but they didn't. Um, normally it is asked, um, that is how long does the RNA stay in your body? Where does it go? Um, how long does it produce the protein? How much protein is produced? Where does the protein go? All of those things were answered in this recent cell paper from Stanford that just came out in January of this year. But the same things could have been addressed before these vaccines were ever emergency use authorized. Um, it is a gross dereliction of duty. Those are pretty, well, they, those are pretty strong. Hold on, Jill. Those are pretty strong accusations, Robert. Okay, because in, in, because you're basically saying <clears throat> that they didn't follow the rules. All right. Overall, my no, question. My, my question. Wait, hold on. My question is. Pardon me. I'm providing you statements of fact. I know um, that. I, I know well, that. One thing but, is, I just have to interject. When you say Pfizer, Robert, it's really the FDA allowed them to not follow the rules. You know, a, a, a company is always going to do the minimum that they have to do to get their product to market. And it was the FDA that allowed them to do this. It was not Pfizer breaking a rule. It was the FDA allowed them to do it. All right. It, 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 if I, had submitted, if I had submitted on behalf of a client a data package like that, I would be embarrassed to do so. And I would fully expect and should expect that the FDA would send it right back to me saying, I'm sorry, you haven't done your job. These are the standard assays that you're supposed to do. You have not done them. You must complete them before we'll evaluate and make further consideration. That is what always happens. It was well, let me, not let me, done. Uh, Jill, let me pose a question to you. With your regulatory okay. experience, okay, and your your emphasis on, on your experience, you know, following these rules, do you think that the the justification for it is because of the Emergency Use Act? Is that is that what they're going to justify it by? Absolutely, they're going to justify it that way. But the, the and and um, there's no question that's what they did. Um, another rule that they broke, which confounds this, is that they did not stratify by age the risk. Any other vaccine that's ever licensed, they stratify by, by age risk. Um, we know that most of the risk is in the elderly. This is um, why so many scientists and physicians have signed the Great Barrington Declaration saying that only the elderly should have gotten these vaccines and that um, healthy normal people, particularly younger people, were not at any big risk. 
Um, so another rule breaking by the FDA, why that was done, we don't know. Um, nobody's gotten a good explanation of that, but there it is. It's done. Um, yes. So Robert, so if I can address your, if I can address your point about, um, then the absence of having done these studies due to the haste to, uh, move a product forward. The, for instance, the biodistribution studies could have been performed easily during the phase one and or phase two trials without any delay. This was just a gross failure on the part of the FDA to follow their own norms. Robert, in the past, you, you have told me when I first spoke to you, which is uh, June of last year, uh, over the phone that you that there were people that you knew that were inside FDA and CDC because because of your experience you know that were that basically had some concerns and then recently in your Candace Owens interview you you mentioned when she you pushed back a little bit when she talked about people you know getting off the bench and going public and you said that you understood do you think it's a, a major concern for people who know that this, these rules have been broken, they know why, because they've been in the room to come forward and to let the world know what, what went on at this point in time? Because what you're, what you're concluding is that this is really dangerous stuff and no, no, the rules weren't followed and that there may be a justification because the Emergency Use Act at the same time, if they didn't do these, these age strata studies and they're going after the kids now, and we know that the injuries are real and they're neurological and they're vascular and it hasn't been recognized by the FDA publicly and officially. I mean, this is this is so many rules seem to be broken and maybe they can justify it legally, but morally, I'm not certain that they can. I concur. And uh, I think that uh, what we're seeing is a, um, a profound uh, compromise of uh, the uh, regulatory independence, both throughout health and human services, not just as FDA, but also CDC. And um, over time, there have been so many examples of, you could call them whistleblowers or truth tellers or people of conscience in both of these agencies that have been run out and uh, demean that um, it's become clear that there's no place for people anymore at these agencies who uh, are acting as independent thinkers, independent scientists. And the um, this process of winnowing out anyone that is willing to speak um, combined with the fact that those who work for these agencies at typically 80% or less of market rate are doing so often because they have some need for security in the form of pensions, et cetera. The security associated with a oh, federal bureaucrat. Um, yeah, as Jill points out for the younger ones, there's the incentive that uh, they, and Project Veritas captured this quite elegantly in uh, one of their, uh, fascinating uh, surreptitious interviews where they got a member of uh, senior staff at FDA 
in the biodefense sector to uh, just say the unspoken, um, which was uh, we, none of them uh, that have any interest in future careers are willing to do things which would go against what they believe to be the interest of the pharmaceutical industry because they will not be able to capture uh, high value jobs when they leave the agency. So there's a kind of a, an odd forward looking um, uh, self-censorship going on within these regulatory bodies because of the financial power and enticement incentive associated with future employment in the industries that they're regulating. So there's a complex dynamic. In the case of the three individuals that I used to interact with that you're referring to on a weekly basis, uh, which weekly conference stopped when I first went on Tucker and told Tucker what uh, the things were that they were all griping about, um, that being uh, the shocking revelation that the VAR system was a hot mess, which at the time was considered heresy, but now we all acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. um, those three individuals were all late stage, late career, about to retire, um, and very senior scientists. And in all cases, they uh, were there and in, in basically sitting out their time because they wanted to collect their pensions. So those, those are typical dynamics that go on within the federal bureaucracy at all levels. So, so Robert just mentioned the VAERS system, and I just want to touch on that briefly in terms of the safety issue and something that's not generally recognized. We all know that, or many of us know, that the VAERS system is self-reporting until um, there's a death or severe injury, and then there's supposed to be a physician report, but there's no penalties if, if one doesn't. So, so it, there's a, so there have been studies done with other vaccines showing that the bear system underreports injuries. Um, the issue we have now with the bears report is the mRNA that we now know from the cell paper that the mRNA is sticking around for at least 60 days. And they did this, as Robert said, mentioned by fine needle biopsy in the journal centers of lymph node, and they're finding the mRNA. That means that the mRNA is still immunosuppressive and making spike protein, you know, for up to 60 days. But the VAR system, the, the reporting, basically anything older than a certain date, they kind of kick out as irrelevant. So we know that these adverse events are happening much longer than the, the usual maximum kind of 30 days that the VAR, that a, that a physician would even think to report. I mean, think about somebody having a, 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 a cardiac event, you know, day 60 after vaccine. No physician is going to report that. So we really do not know the true extent of the adverse events that these vaccines are doing because, number one, the, the VAR system is self-reporting. Number two, the CDC does not investigate any of those reports. And so, therefore, they say they're not verified. It's, it's a huge mess. Well, we have we have seen outside of the VAERS report, I've interviewed clinical and non-clinical vax injured now for over a year. So I know that many of them are still sick uh, and they have used, you know, tr 
treatments, most of their doctors don't know how to how to deal with it because the, the, the FDA hasn't acknowledged the vascular and the they've only acknowledged the cardio. They haven't acknowledged the neurological and the vascular, and they don't have any directives. And their doctors are afraid to do anything except for some of the people you 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 guys and I know, you know, who are who are really into the treating people like uh, Pierre and Paul Merrick. But having said that, what you know now about the the level of, of people not speaking out, do you guys think that there is just a moral bankruptcy with these agencies? I'm not talking about the excuse of bureaucracy, but when people's lives are at stake and we know that people are dying and people are not are being reported by their doctors and they're not being treated, What's your position on on the institution that you've been attached to as scientists and as doc, you know, the, and and for the for your adult you life, professionally? No, you, you take that one. I, I would like to to mention it's not just the institution; it's the um, physicians. There's a recent Medscape article reporting on a peer-reviewed paper that looked at, did a poll on physicians that showed that ten percent are vaccine hesitant, okay? Mm -hmm. And the, the, there were also, the, the article was very derisive that 10%, that they need to do a better job at educating physicians, blah, 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 blah. Physicians know, many physicians know. We have physicians come up to us every rally, writing us, calling us. I know these vaccines are doing damage, but I can't say anything. I would lose my job. I have kids. I have a mortgage, I have a huge student loan debt, I'm stuck. I'm stuck having to recommend these vaccines. I don't know what to do. And we really don't have an answer for them. But at some level, there's a certain amount of moral bankruptcy too at the individual. The individual who knows that there's an issue and they're so frightened that they can't speak up. And I understand being frightened like that. But at the same time, it's very disheartening. So it uh, we put out a substack that talked about this a little bit the other day this what we've what what has occurred has been a gradual erosion of independence of scientists and medical professionals for decades and uh what we're we this is one of these boiling frog situations where as as a world community and as patients as well as physicians and scientists we haven't really been cognizant of it because it's crept up on us. You know, it's the daily, uh, you know, or weekly modification of the landscape. One of the big uh, drivers in this hesitancy or uh, to, to um, uh, stand up for uh, t what are taught moral norms in terms of bioethics is the enormous debt that uh, practitioners incur in order to get through their training in the United States. That's many other countries um, subsidize uh, medical training and graduate student training to a much higher extent. But here in the States, there even the PhDs are coming out as uh, no longer as young adults, but often advanced in their 20s or even early 30s. Likewise, physicians, they have uh, enormous six-figure debt. The uh, um, interest rates are not favorable. 
and they are placed in their only options now for employment in terms of physicians are predominantly in a hospitalist or a, um, a hospital network controlled practices that have strict guidelines for treatment uh, as, as cost control measures. And so these docs are faced with a situation where they truly are caught in a vice of enormous debt, young families, and employers that have terms and conditions that drastically limit their freedom to prescribe and manage patients. And so they, they truly have, they're between the devil and the deep blue sea. Uh, if they speak out, um, they are confronting high probability, not only of uh, losing their job, but under the current thing that we've seen over the last two years, losing their medical license. So their ability to practice their craft is under constant threat. And there's notable examples. This is probably one of the reasons why Peter McCullough was so uh, harshly treated was to make him an example uh, because well, it was so high. You know, I, I, hate to I hate to tell you this, but in the 1990s, they tried to pass a bill in California so that the parents wouldn't have the right uh, to, to choose whether or not their child was on SSRIs. This has been going on for a long time. And we also yeah, know that's my point. We've, we've also known yep. since World War II that the increase of pharmaceutical companies and what Arthur Sackler who, and his two brothers who founded Purdue, they bought the, the journals. So this is not this is not new. This is not this is not the leap of frog. There's the embedded uh, I, within I, the pharmaceutical industry and scientists and medicine. There has been a lot of fraud embedded in the model for a long period of time. Yep. So, I mean, I think so the doctors are just waking up to it. But I mean, within the pharmaceutical industry, it, it, it has been out there. It's been documented. So this gets, back, this gets back to your question. When your question was actually, what do we think of the institutions? Mm -hmm. And our, so to answer that, we have regulatory capture. We have lobbyists writing bills in Congress that are dictating what the FDA and the CDC do and how vaccines are um, distributed. The whole system has been corrupted. We have Citizens United, which has made it so that uh, pharmaceutical companies can give unlimited amounts of money to politicians. Um, the Citizens United ruling that has allowed this. We have so much corruption now in our entire government, but the pharmaceutical companies in particular have used these loopholes to basically drive their business. Um, you know, when you look at the vaccine schedule, that was once, you know, 25 vaccines um, that were required in the childhood schedule up to age 18. Back in the, you know, I think as late as that, you know, um, 1980s or even later, and now we have 70 something vaccines that are required of children. Doses. Doses. Um, the fact that if a pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical companies wrote into, I believe it was the CARES Act, um, that if they can get a vaccine down to age zero, they have no liability for any other age cohort. And so now we're pushing vaccines for, for, for newborns. I mean, this system has been corrupted. 
and somehow it has to be fixed. And I, I don't know what the solution is. And the, and the fact is, is that our, these pharma companies and these corporations are now transnationals. It's, there's, they're not even national companies. They're, we're in a mess um, politically. So there's, there's a term called, uh, that, that is used called inverted totalitarianism. And it's a, it's a political science term that describes a environment in which there are uh, authoritarian practices implemented in a uh, governing system like a representative democracy in which the leadership and authority of the people have been subverted not by a single person, that would be classic totalitarianism, but or, or a small collection of people, but rather by a group of individuals, typically uh, wealthy and uh, in collusion with a bureaucrat class. The term that Trump championed, of course, was deep state, but that's a kind of a simple way to describe it. That's what we have is this intersection between um, huge uh, wealth and uh, capital and the power that comes with it and a bureaucrat class that has become linked to that and is acting um, to uh, subvert the will of the electorate. This is, this is what we see when we talk about Tony Fauci or Rochelle Walensky or uh, Peter Barks uh, or Janet Woodcock, um, all acting in concert to uh, advance the interests of, say, the pharmaceutical industry, and uh, and in the case of CDC, big tech, uh, through the billion dollars of investment in promoting vaccines that they've made, etc. It goes on made. and on. Um, so that that's the situation we have is where this uh, elite bureaucrat technocrat class, in collusion uh, with uh, large financial interests have gained control of the, the levers of government and what has been experienced in, and I've spoken to many people uh, that were within the Trump administration, Peter Navarro is a great example, uh, who experienced this firsthand and they were, they were gobsmacked by what they saw. They assumed that if you were able to appoint the top few tiers of allowed political appointees, they would be able to pivot the bureaucracy to advance the agendas that they wished. And what they found was exactly the opposite, that the bureaucracy was completely resistant to executive control and has basically assumed the levers of power. What, what has been shared with us is that one of the ways that this is done within health and human services is if a new administration comes in or a new appointee assumes control of an agency um, and wishes to implement change, they're confronted with a bureaucrat class that basically tells them, if you make these changes and there are deaths or an outbreak or a public health crisis, fill in the blank, um, if you make these changes and this happens, you will be held responsible. You will be responsible for those deaths. Um, you will be responsible for that disease. And that strategy effectively 
has been able to shut down any efforts by the executive branch historically to rein in the likes of Tony Fauci. That's why we have this monster that has become the, the modern equivalent of J. Edgar Hoover is this strategy of threatening Congress and the White House that if you don't follow my expert advice, the, uh, the deaths will be on your head. So, well, you know, in historic, it, historically, that, that you used to call that fascism, okay? And I think yes. that there was a yeah. level, there was a level of... Absolutely, um, and fascism and, and inverted totalitarianism can go, absolutely go hand in hand. Right. Um, well, it's just, an, it's a new term for an old word. I mean, it is fascism. Yeah. When you, when you yeah. take well, the government... Well, it's, it's a, a little different. Let me just say something, though. Along with this now, we have our ex-president Obama saying that scolding okay our town hall administrators that is the internet big tech that they are not censoring enough vaccine information as he calls it misinformation ergo our ability to resist what is happening and to talk about it in our town hall which now has essentially become the internet in all its um machinations is going you know is they are actively lobbying that that be taken away from us. This is incredibly scary um, because not only do we have this um, system that is becoming more authoritarian, they're not going to let us even talk about it. You know, um, as if we're all going to go, instead of talking on the internet, as if we're all going to go meet down at the local, you know, Denny's and, and talk about these things. That doesn't happen anymore. So. Um, it's a really scary time right now. Yeah, so so just to underscore it, we have this uh, conjunction of Obama's recent uh, tour and speech at Stanford uh, for his which institute. Which just, just happened yesterday. And, mm -hmm. Yes. Which is directly advocating for more censorship, not less. Particularly on um, medical freedom. And that is uh, coming at the same time as a, a letter from a large group of ex-intelligence community employees, federal employees, that are also advocating for more censorship. And they're justifying this on the basis of uh, a Russian boogeyman, basically, on the basis of discussions about what's happened in Ukraine, which we now know there were Ukrainian biolabs. They were engaged in bioweapons research. This is by the government's own words. Um, however, the government asserts that bioweapons research in those Ukrainian labs, partnered with the U.S. government and funded by the U.S. government, were not offensive bioweapons. That is grasping at straws. But it is allowed. Defensive bioweapon research is allowed under the um, Bioweapons Convention. So which, which is, why, is they're, why... why they're using that lang that specific language is they're acknowledging that there was bioweapons research ongoing. And that's another example of something in this space that the intelligence community, together with the White House, has actively cooperated to craft a storyline and censor uh, and, and propagandize to influence the perception of the American public. I'm not in any way saying that Putin 
is a good guy um, or that the invasion was or was not justified. But to those ends, um, you may recall that there were airstrikes almost immediately after the invasion began of all of those Ukrainian bioweapons labs. We, our understanding is those airstrikes were actually American or surrogate uh, forces. They were not Russian forces. Well, I'm going to stop you. I'm gonna, Robert, I'm going to stop you right there. That's speculation because we have a team of reporters on the inside of Ukraine and Todd Wood, um, one of my colleagues, was over there <clears throat> in February. So, I mean, th that is speculation. Yeah, right. so, 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 let, me just say, let me just say, at the rally in L.A., there was a lieutenant colonel, active duty, um, who I was speaking to, who specifically told me that. And so, yes, it's speculation, but I got that from an active duty service person. And it's still um, speculation, it's Jill. It is still yes, speculation. Yes, it is still speculation. Yes. Okay, yes. That, that's, there's a um, lot of rumors that are out but, there. But what is if not we could confirm it, I can guarantee you that we would have reported it. What is, <laughs> what is not speculation is that the DHS has sent out a letter specifically calling their ability to say that people who are engaged in speaking of vaccines that is not the government party lane, line can be labeled as domestic terrorists. Again, another ratcheting down of the American public and their ability to speak um, about medical issues. Um, very scary. All right, so let me, let me switch the topic here. Did you guys ever work with anybody that was connected to the PREDICT project? No, no. Did you ever work, did you ever work with uh, Peter Daszak? No. no. Did you did never you, done data function research? All right. Did you have anything? Did did you have anything to do with the the Eco Alliance? I mean, which is which is no. the, the Welcome no. Trust or anything like no. that? So, so your no. your no. your body of knowledge is this right to assume your body of knowledge is outside of that entire gain of function? Absolutely. In terms of direct experience, yeah. but uh, gain of function research is something that has been ongoing within our sphere uh, for decades, including in adjacent labs at UC Davis when we were there. Um, it's something that we've objected to in the past. Uh, and in, what spoken out about. in what context, Robert? Uh, generation of SIV, HIV chimeras and insertion of human cytokines in the resulting product. Into translate, into that, into translate that, Robert, into, into layman's terms for the audience. In the laboratory of Paul Lusu, who was a full professor at UC Davis, who had worked at Chiron before that and uh, had close ties to the Bishop and Varmus lab. Um, during the 1990s, there was a paradox in the field of uh, simian immunodeficiency virus research and associated vaccine development. That was that the disease AIDS could not be readily recapitulated with an isolated simian immunodeficiency virus retrovirus, which is related to HIV. And so there was a active effort to uh, create a model for simian immunodeficiency virus disease that would recapitulate the human disease so that vaccines might be developed. In monkeys. Using monkey model. And mm -hmm. so what was done in Lucy's lab was to 
uh, create chimeric viruses, that is to swap out um, sections, genetic sections of one retrovirus for another. In this case, SHB and HIV and mm -hmm. smash them together. Something, yes. Because she wants things precise. Um, so recombinants using standard genetic engineering technology available at the time, which did not include CRISPR-Cas9, of uh, uh, human immunodeficiency virus, simian immunodeficiency virus. And since those recombinants still could not recapitulate the disease, and you may, may be aware that there's controversy of whether HIV in and of itself is necessary and sufficient to cause the disease called AIDS versus uh, the cofactor or primary factor <laughs> human herpes virus, um, it, typically HHV8. And so what Lusu Lab was actively involved in was in then adding additional human pro-inflammatory cytokines into those recombinant molecules to make a virus that would cause AIDS-like symptoms in monkeys. Did that, was that clear enough? It is for me, it may not be for the audience, but here, here's, here's what I, I wanna ask you. With that type of research going on, and we're talking about, um, because you guys are the in, into infectious diseases, immunology, um, vaccinations, the development of science to address infectious disease. How safe do you think it is for anybody to be creating anything and to be testing in any human a shot yes. or, or, or drugs <clears throat> that can enhance and, be, and turn into further chronic illnesses and diseases? Because I think that the problem that people are not understanding is the fact that a lot of the pharmaceutical, whether it's drugs or vaccinations, these, these elements, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm losing my voice. These elements actually enhance disease as opposed to cure. We live in a country so, 75% of people are on prescriptions as opposed to wellness. So within your industry, does anybody ever talk about ethics? Does anybody ever really question? Or is just everybody thinking I can't do it because I've got school debt? I mean, I find that to be obscene to be used as an excuse going into an industry where there's no ethics. Um, uh, this is why I have spoke, this is what initially triggered me to start speaking out is that for most physicians and certainly for myself and Jill also, we've, anybody involved in clinical research or in uh, as part of their medical school training and we both had extensive training in bioethics during our Harvard fellowship on clinical research. Anybody involved in clinical research in the United States must take bioethics training regarding that. And for most of us, this is uh, our, our lodestone. We follow these rules rigorously under risk that we would lose our license. What has occurred here is the demeaning and destruction of my entire uh, um, discipline, profession. And uh, please don't assume that because there are bad actors um, working in conjunction or for the pharmaceutical industry 
who are willing to um, uh, subvert, bypass, or ignore. Go overseas. Uh, you have offshore, um, et cetera. Um, uh, clinical research in order to bypass the bioethical norms that are captured in the Nuremberg Code, the Helsinki Accord, and the common rule in the United States that are taught to all of us as uh, medical practitioners and particularly as clinical research practitioners, just because there's some bad actors here, don't assume that we are all bad actors, please. I, you, you, you speak as if there are no uh, individuals who have spoken out and what you're doing in how you phrase the question, forgive me for saying, is you're buying straight into the narrative that's being promoted by a variety of sources on both sides of this issue, which is that the medical community is unanimous or that there's only a small fringe of physicians who've objected. Um, I, you mentioned that we have been uh, conducting these global summits all over the world uh, with a variety of other physicians. These are other physicians and scientists who have not only spoken out, but are actively touring without compensation all over the world to share uh, their version of truth and their observations. So it, it is, you know, frankly, I, I don't I don't take personal umbrage at you, but but let's not buy into this logic that everybody's corrupt. We have a small cadre of At the very highly top. influential people who are clearly captured and do not feel that they're bound by the bioethical norms that uh, the rest of us respect and have been trained in year after year after year. And the one thing that they have tried very hard to fa fact check is that we have 18,000 signatories to our declaration about these vaccines not being suitable for children and that the and about the shortcuts and that there are life-saving treatments. We have 18,000 verified signatures, verified to a academic institution that have signed this declaration through the um, uh, Global COVID Summit. So these are 18,000 physicians and medical scientists from all over the world, validated, that have signed a declaration asserting that what has happened constitutes a crime against humanity. That's not trivial. Uh, no, so it's not. It's not, Robert. Politics. It's not. But let me tell you something. I've, I've covered politics for 40 years all over the world. I've taken some deep dives on corruption with the Catholic Church sex scandals and human trafficking for 22 years. And the depth of this corruption is like nothing I've ever seen. And the difference I between agree. now and 25 years ago is Fauci was still there. And when I'm talking to people today and I'm interviewing people and people are telling me that, in fact, Fauci was as corrupt 25 years ago as, as it's yep. been revealed now, people it did is, not. It has been that. my entire my entire career has been under the um, uh, heavy hand of Tony Fauci, which is why Robert has always chosen to work with the Department of Defense. Paradoxically, the DOD is one of the only refuges um, available in my line of research that is free from Tony Fauci's heavy hand.
Well, why, why did um, his, in, why did his, but his, his uh, salary increase when he was given some portion of the, the, uh, the, D, the, what was the name of it? The weapons, the bioweapons department at DOD. That's yeah, when his salary. So you're was you're exactly right. You're exactly right. There was a congressional decision that he should be given a special um, authorization for salary increase because of the increased burden of his uh, um, uh, portfolio and responsibility when he successfully captured Took away. a large fraction of the DOD biodefense budget under the justification that the Department of Defense had been derelict and incompetent, particularly as respects to the anthrax attacks. Um, and so uh, that's how it happened. And Jill's just uh, poking me right now in the leg uh, subtly. I know you guys have uh, got to go. Because we have a follow-on that we have to hit. I know, I know. Well, listen, thank you very much. And we'll see you in Ohio. Okay, okay thank, thank you, you very much.